Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today, my guest is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Bessel van der Kolk is probably one of my biggest trauma heroes. Um, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. I read his book in 2018, and not only did it change the way I felt about myself, it also changed my life, and it set me on this path to creating healing and awareness about childhood trauma experiences um, in prisons. And so this is such a big day for me and it's such an important interview for me. And I'm, I don't know why I keep crying. I've cried already twice and here I am crying again. Um, here's his bio. Bessel van der Kolk is the founder and medical director of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts. He's also a professor of psychiatry at Boston University Medical School. His books include Traumatic Stress, The Effects of Overwhelming Experience on the Mind, Body, and Society, and The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Bessel van der Kolk, welcome to Compassion in Action. I just... I have to tell you, um, your book changed my life. It, and yeah, and I just wanted to thank you so much. Um, I read it in 2018. I gave it to my sister. She gave it to her therapist. They hadn't even heard about trauma. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, I don't know if you know that I'm working in prisons. And that's, that's why I took the assignment. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and I just have to say, you're one of my heroes. Um, the work you're doing, the way you've changed, uh, the way we think about behavior and trauma um, is, is a, it's landmark work. And I'm just so grateful for what you've done and what you're doing. Um, Thank you. Yes. And I'd like to start off with what is your definition of trauma? So trauma is an, uh, an, an experience that overwhelms your coping mechanisms. So it's different for different people. And that leave you horrified, bewildered, confounded, no way out and collapsed, basically. Yes, and trauma is not just from war or from natural causes or from natural uh, disasters. Um, no, most traumas are a function of interpersonal trauma. Most, most traumas occur in families. Uh, for women, the most traumas are inflicted by the intimate partners. For kids, most traumas are inflicted by both parents. Moms are not exempted. And quite a few men also get traumatized by the female partners, of course. Um, and so it, it's, it starts in the family, basically. And so there's emphasis on Oh, it happens out there when people go to Afghanistan. Uh, I wish it was true, huh? but trauma starts at home. Yes, and you talk about secrets and that how when we keep these secrets, um, yeah. it, it's there's no way to process what what happened to us. Yeah. So so when something happens, um, the immediate thing is not that you get permanently altered. You you are completely befuddled, etc. And then the response of your environment becomes critical. So if somebody holds you and say, 
honey, I'll take care of you. I'll be there for you. Like we do with little babies. Anybody who's ever had a baby knows how catastrophic babies react to their environments. And then you pick them up and you sing them, you rock them. And then before too long, it's no longer a catastrophe. That's true for humans to a large degree also. So the event is not the end. The response of the environment is huge. And again, in interpersonal family violence, again, uh, oftentimes cannot be talked about. So it's not real. Right. Uh, and so a very important part of, uh, of resolving trauma is to be able to tell the truth. Yes. And you talk about environments where of soothing. Um, and when you're in a prison, there's no, there's no way to resolve these issues that are coming up um, you're already traumatized and then you can't even ask for help. The secrets are even more embedded in prisons. And well, of course, prisons are very complex situations because, you know, there may be prisoners who have not been traumatized, but it's not the ones I hear about or meet. Um, <laughs> and so you come into this with, uh, without a sense of safety, sense of security, sense of self oftentimes. And then you go into a prison, and of course, everything gets multiplied. And I'm oftentimes astonished that there are people who actually manage to get programs in prisons that actually make a difference. Like one of my favorite programs, very simple, is hula dancing in St. Quentin, Quentin Prison. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's so cool, you know? And the Shakespeare programs that a variety of people that I know do, where you can give a voice to yourself. Uh, and become a member of a team, of a group, of a group of people who do stuff. And so I'm just really amazed what the creative programs that are in prison here and there. Probably pretty exceptional, but when you hear about it, you go like, wow, that's really fantastic. <laughs> I want to talk about those programs after down the line because it's about getting to the cortex. And so... I want to talk a little bit about the technical issues or the technical uh, neuroscience. So can you just tell us about the amygdala, the cortex, and um, you call them the, the smoke alarm and the watchtower. So if you can... Uh, you know, even in neuroscience, it's all metaphors. Right? So there's clusters of cells that we sort of call the amygdala or other clusters of cells we call the apicorectal gray. But it's really the brain is just... Uh, billions of, of neurons that are connected with each other that form networks. Huh? And so it's really about um, how trauma changes your networks. It changes your network of fear. So that things that for other people go like, yeah, the guy was a little out of control. For you, it goes like, look, the guy did something, and you become very angry. Huh? Or somebody looks at you cross-eyed, and for the rest of the week, you are feeling totally dejected and nobody loves me, um, even though it's relatively minor. So to a large degree, after having been traumatized, your brain automatically responds to things as if that old stuff is back. And you start behaving like it. And when you behave like people are attacking you, you're likely to attack people. And so you're likely to do terrible things to people. Huh? And I'm sure that the prison environment is a very reactive environment where there are probably not a lot of saints walking around like, hey, take it easy, man, I'll take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then, so everybody's reactive and then 
the guards are reactive and they probably have their own issues. And so you get this very reactive environment where everybody's trying to control everybody rather than helping people to to regain the sense of themselves. But the, at the core of all this is that after having been traumatized, your brain gets rewired basically to deal with extreme situations. So um, let's say somebody has served three tours of uh, in Afghanistan. They're very good at being in Afghanistan. They suck at being home in Los Angeles because their brain is wired to see danger everywhere and they don't see the flowers blooming out here, they see the, don't see the kids playing, it sort of becomes meaningless. And so your whole, your whole system gets rewired and reorganized to, be, to cope with danger, basically. Which is exactly how we're wired in prison. Yeah. Um, it's, it's well, this... prison, of course, aggravates us. So people come into a prison, by and large, with very hyper-reactive central nervous systems, or the other side, which is shutting down and feeling nothing. And the two can be at the same time because, well, just so you know, I have an A score of eight. I've been very hypervigilant all my life, but I've also had tendencies to want to numb out right. um, and just, you know. Yeah, and I think the word want is not appropriate there. You automatically numb out. Mm. It's not like, oh, let me make myself numb out something happens and you disappear and sometimes you may welcome it at other times you go like i didn't want to disappear <laughs> but see what's important to know and it's really critical is that these events occur in the back of your brain which is survival brain that's the part of your brain that we have in common with all other mammals and so your brain automatically reacts uh, in fight and flight or automatically uh, reacts in freeze and your cognitive self has very little control over that and that's the key here to me this yeah. is like the, the crux of when i realized that when i realized that my road rage had nothing to do with who i was that the way when my son would drop something in the kitchen and i'd scream <sighs> it's like you know what you yeah. know and yell at him and just go ballistic and I you know I really was being really hard on myself and the awareness just I'm just going to cry again the awareness about that this is not who I am this is this is a function of my brain trying to keep myself safe and the result is you feel ashamed about who you are huh? and so you do things that you don't really want to do and that make people angry or reject you, say, hey, I don't want to hang out with her because every minor thing she blows up and gets insulted, offended, etc., etc. And so, so you feel like you feel more and more like a defective person. And, and, that, and that the feeling of being defective becomes a very important part of who you are. And so basically, you say, I'm a piece of shit, I'm no good. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And when I read your book, that that feeling lifted. It was like, oh, and that's when, and then a month later I walked into a prison and mm. I was looking around and I said, this isn't a prison, this is a trauma center. This is just, everybody in here is traumatized and we gotta do something about it. We can't leave them here. 
And just so you know, I've sent the book to maybe 15 men in prison. I sent your book. I've seen many pictures of prisoners reading my books, which is which <laughs> makes my day. <laughs> yes, and you know, there's 1,833 prisons in the United States and then 110 federal prisons. And I want all of them to have your book. I want them all and I want them to do book clubs on this. So good. good. Yes, because this is it. We're done. We're done with what we were doing. This is it. We're in a new paradigm now. And the paradigm says you're traumatized. Let's let's bring healing. But anyway, back to <laughs> back to um, the smoke detector and the watchtower. So I love that those metaphors. Um, so basically, the, the smoke detector sits at the back of your brain. Um, that is always active. So it's, are you okay? So, so if you see something scary, you're going to flight, flight, pumps your heart up, makes you want to disappear or fight back. Um, or it says, man, you're done for and you shut down and you play possum as it were. So, so that's a primitive reaction. Now the, the question becomes is how do you get there? Huh? And how do you get to that animal brain inside of you? And it turns out there's probably there's actually two ways of doing it. One is through um, holding, touching, and breathing, basically. As you go to, into the whole um, safety with people, people holding you, calming you down, kindergarten teacher type stuff. You all should be, if you become a trauma therapist, you have to become a kindergarten teacher because you're dealing with. This, kindergarten type brains like you don't, you don't say to kids don't get upset no you kids get upset and so you need to sort of arrange it that someone is an adult in the room who helps you to sort of calm down and the other way is you can there's a there's a, um, a circuit in the brain which is called the midline structures the cortex that run from just above your eyes in the middle of your brain to the back and that's the part of your brain that's devoted to yourself and that gets very damaged when you get traumatized so you don't have much of a sense of who you really are and what you really want and what you really need so it sets you up to not have a clear goal in life and not very clearly uh, being able to accomplish your your sense of purpose because that sense of self is oftentimes gets gets very damaged um, and so then but once that part of you comes online you can actually take care of that inner creature that you inhabit. And so um, a friend of mine who died about two years ago did this, um, wrote a book called the Dharma, the Dharma Brothers and did a program on Vipassana meditation in the Alabama jails. It's a stunning teaching prisoners how to meditate. And these were not nice people and they were not gentle people. And I don't know how the hell they did it, but they got them to meditate for a whole week in a row in almost complete silence. And it had sensational results. Because huh? the meditation activates that interoceptive pathway, that, which I call the mohawk of the brain, basically. And so in order to become the master of your own ship, you need to get to know yourself and feel yourself and experience yourself and uh, treat yourself almost like a, a kid. Like, hey, what's going on with you, boy? What are you feeling right now? 
what are you upset about? And really, and you feel your body and to feel what calms you down and to learn to breathe and to learn to take care of yourself the way you take care of a small kid. Yeah, yeah, because most of the people in prison from what I've seen in the men and women I've talked to weren't parented. Um, a lot of their, they'll lend um, in, I just spoke with Dr. Bruce Perry and he talks about how when we start bringing trauma therapy to people, we actually take them back to the developmental places where they they right. hadn't received. Yeah. So being nurturing. That's stuff extremely well. Yep. Yeah, being you know, being kind and compassionate to yourself is a way to start getting into your brain. I think you talked about it going from the bottom up or the top down. So meditation would be the top down. And yeah, top down. So really just noticing what goes on inside of you. Of course, it helps enormously to have a teacher. Yes. Uh, most of us aren't very good, at, like even during COVID, like I'm a big fan of, of yoga. My research has shown that yoga is an incredibly effective treatment of trauma, better than any psychiatric drug, by the way. Uh, uh, but during COVID, I don't practice yoga all the time because there's not enough support uh, and so, so, you know, we're very social creatures and we can help each other. Huh? And when, uh, when you have a, when you're in prison or anywhere else, and you have people say, okay, Monday from eight to nine, we do yoga and we do it again two days from now. And you sort of have other people do it. That makes it much easier. Um, you bring up COVID and that's something I wanna uh, just touch upon because I think it's, an, it's a threat. And it is a place, especially in prison, it's an invisible threat. Yeah. And and I talked to a, a former vet and he said he was panicked cleaning his house and just really bouncing off the walls, feeling yeah. feeling out of control. And and so what is that? What happens when it's an invisible threat? What happens to the brain well, and the I guess it depends very much on who you are. You know? People ask me about COVID all the time. I say, what do you think about the trauma of COVID? I said, actually, it's a trauma for some people, not for other people. For me, as a guy who has been around for a while, who is financially pretty secure, who has a loving marriage, it's an inconvenience. Right. I missed hanging out with my friends. I miss hugging people a lot. But missing people is not a trauma. It's sad that we couldn't hang out, but, but you know, when it triggers you and it reminds you of Nepal in Vietnam or, you know, something about the world being dangerous and you're uptight all the time, then not only does it become threatening to you, but it becomes threatening who you, for the people you're with. Because, you know, one of the things that's been hard with COVID is that we need to put up with each other's idiosyncrasies uh, when you live with somebody and hopefully you're still enough when somebody leaves the dirty dishes in the sink or whatever, huh? you go like, honey, you forgot the dishes rather than threatening them and blowing up. <laughs> but the trauma response is to threaten to blow up. And so we know that there has been an incredible increase in domestic violence because so many people don't know how to regulate their physiology. Yeah. Uh, and and so that that's it's it's so great you just talk about everything i have on my list <laughs> um 
Well, I just want to bring this quote up before we, um, but I want to talk about regulation because that's right. so key to all of your work and everything I learned. I've, I'm learning how to regulate because of this. You wrote, you say, being traumatized means continuing to organize your life as if the trauma were still going on, unchanged and unmutable as every encounter or event is contaminated by the past. That's so, right. yeah. And so being in prison and having COVID right there, it's, a, it's, a, it's just another trigger. Yeah. No, you know, you really choose the toughest environment. It's, you know, to make a prison into a healing place, boy, that's quite a challenge, huh? Where people can feel safe. Um, for example, it's a simple thing that helps people feel safe. Singing together. I don't know how much singing together is in prisons. I don't know. Um, but as a kid, I have memories of singing everywhere. In school, in camps, youth groups, whatever. Kids don't sing that much anymore. Because the iPhone brings it to us and we don't have to do it anymore. And so we have cut off one way of really calming ourselves down and being in sync with each other. But making music together, dancing together, singing together, uh, playing sports together, uh, all these things bring our bodies in sync with the bodies around us. And when we, our body is in sync with other people, we feel a sense of pleasure. The sense of pleasure that we experience is the result of being in sync. So one of the things that was left out of all the textbooks is that trauma leads to a loss of pleasure. Huh? Yes. And because it makes other people so scary, so you don't feel a sense of pleasure. It's hard, it's not never, but it makes it harder to feel that sense of being in sync with each other. Uh, so what I have been really pushing and emphasizing in school systems and other systems, we need to do more moving together, singing together, being in sync with each other, which is when you travel around the world to India, Indochina, Africa, people deal with trauma by, by synchronous activities. Our culture is so disembodied that we deal with trauma by, by taking pills and, and drinking alcohol. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Desmond Tutu um, would stop the, the reconciliation uh, trials and have yeah. people start moving and dancing and singing. Absolutely. And I thought that yeah. was incredible. And you also yeah. talked about marching bands. And, yeah. and I also thought about in the military, just having that rhythm with people. Exactly. Um, you know, they, yeah. do, they do these exercises in marching because they're, they're in sync. So, you know, but you look at it, it's really amazing. The basic training in the military, that kids who join the military are not the most regulated, goal-oriented, well-put-together people. And many people join the military in order to escape hor horrible situations. But what do you do with these people? And the military, since Roman times, have understood how do you help people to calm down and to become good soldiers by moving together, singing together, marching together. It's all about synchrony. Huh? And uh, I'm actually pushing very hard wherever I go uh, to create more 
more activities having to do with sync, being a sync with other people. Yes. So when I would go into prisons, we'd sit in a circle and we would do these things called crazy eights and we'd um, do these do these little exercises and it made them, it brought joy to the room mm -hmm. and it also brought us in sync. We suddenly, suddenly we'd sit down and we all felt connected all of a yeah. sudden. Yeah. And it, but it's in those circles that I find was the most powerful work we did. Yeah. And, and the more stupid it is, the better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just stupid stuff, you know, just throw a cloth ball at each other, you know, uh, nothing cognitive, nothing like, oh, you will feel so much better if you throw a cloth ball at somebody. You know, we're dealing with a different part of the brain that needs to feel that sense of rhythm and synchronicity, which is natural for mammals. Which so, so those exercises are helping us regulate in, in our um, brainstem and our amygdala. Yeah. And so well, then I think we need to get away from the word amygdala. It's too it's too too defined. It's, you know, like you say, you I think survival brain is a better term. Okay. Let's yeah. do that. Yeah, I've been focused on the amygdala because that's what I learned, but survival brain. So when yeah. the survival brain feels in sync and connected, then you can ascend to the cortex, right? Yeah. Right. And I'm gonna read this quote because this one and in the, the cortex is where the imagination is, right? Yeah, that's true. So you say, imagination is absolutely critical to the quality of our lives. Our imagination enables us to leave our routine everyday existence by fantasizing about travel, food, sex, falling in love, or having the last world, all things that make life interesting. Imagination gives us the opportunity to envision new possibilities. It is an essential launch pad for making our hopes come true. It fires our creativity, relieves our boredom, alleviates our pain, enhances our pleasure, and enriches our most intimate relationships. You know, sometimes people read something from my book and they go, that is good. I wish I had written that. And I go, oh, actually, I did write that. That's yes, good. you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, your, yes, your book is just, it, it's jam-packed. And just to, so about this thing about imagination, because when you're in your survival brain, you can't access the the imagination. Right, right. And that's what you see. It's sort of at the, at the core of trauma is that survival brain takes over, so everything becomes a threat. And so if you start to be nice to me and uh, say, oh, uh, let's think about walking through the woods and uh, just uh, the trees go, I can't do it because I my core being thinks, oh, she's about to do something terrible to me. So I cannot free up my mind to think about other things. Huh? Uh, so you wouldn't know in, in LA, for example, but I live in a very cold part of the country. Uh, and the way you make us through the winter is, I'm already thinking about the winter, even though it's beautiful right now. <laughs> uh, oh, shoveling snow. I said, oh, maybe I'll save some money to go to Puerto Rico and then my, in my imagination, I already feel my my toes in the sand, and I already felt the smell of these tropical flowers. I go, okay, I better save that money and start making a reservation to fly to, to the tropical area. And that makes the winter livable. Yes. But when you're trapped, it's all there is, you know? Right, and, and uh, in 
families that are impoverished, you know, extreme poverty, yeah. they're in their survival brain all the time. Yeah. And the imagination is how you can get yourself out of situations. Right. But if there's no, yeah. And it's huge, it's huge. No, I'm so continuously impressed with that. I, I work in school sometimes. You know, I, I live in a nice part of Boston. I was able to send my kids to nice school and they did theater and music and sports and all kind of stuff that gives me a sense of pleasure and joy. I never had to tell my kids to study because kids like to study if they feel good about themselves. But if everything sucks, you're not going to do that. And so, so what we need to do, and I was really impressed, I'm still very impressed with it right now, is that the, the inequality in different school systems really um, make it much more likely to very poor people to never be able to to find a way out. Right, because and you were talking about budget cuts. Um, yeah, and how what a crime that is to the art programs and to the yeah. theater, all the theater music programs, because those are the things that allow that child to thrive right. and get out of the survival brain. Um, and you also talk about um, the inability to learn when you're in when you're in your survival brain. Yeah. Um, you said when hyper aroused or shut down, we can, oh, we cannot learn from the experience. Right. And that we see over again, and as we can see with your poor people in jail, uh, they don't learn from experience. And they get, are in jail, and the juvenile justice says, well, we'll teach them. But you don't teach them anything because nothing can come in. Right. Uh, and when something dangerous happens, say, oh, that feels familiar. People have screwed with me before. I know how to deal with people who disrespect me. I'll punch them out. Uh, and, and so nothing can be learned if that brain has me calm enough to say, hmm, it feels actually much better to go to somebody. Oh, it looks like you're having a tough day. Yeah, yeah, and because the, yeah. all the information that comes in is first through the survival brain. Exactly, exactly. Yep. And then it's like nanoseconds you talk about. It'll get to the cortex, but it has to pass through the filter. Right. And by the time it gets your cortex, you're already engaged in your uncontrolled behavior. And you push the rational, yeah, I know, I know I shouldn't be hitting her, but. Yeah. I had that with my sister. Um, you know, she's she's younger than me and she can she can criticize me and I am off I have I'm that that person I don't want to be and it's so it's just so sad because we can't we we harm people before we even know what we've done and we kind of know we're doing it but but is it you can learn you know my younger brother occasionally says things like go like wow that's pretty nasty but it's all like, it's pretty nasty. Like, you know, it's like, um, and so if you meditate and if you do yoga and if you do or Tai Chi or hula dancing or any of those things, you probably are able to put up, put up with your sister and go like, yeah, it's too bad my sister is so tactless or feels so angry or something, but it's not about me. It's about her, you know? And so, so you really shift the perspective uh, once you really do the work, yeah.
Yes, I've been doing the work since I read your book. And, yeah. you know, it's still, it's still, it's still a process. Um, and I do meditate and I do, I take walks and I'm, I dance, you know, I dance when no one's watching. And, yeah. <laughs> and I want to bring all of that to the people in prison and to my sister, all of that. So, because I really think once they have the tools, once the people in prison have the tools, including the officers, including the staff. Yeah, absolutely. The level of threat will go down. So how are you doing? Are you able to reach the staff also? Well, we have a curriculum. A, it's a trauma-informed curriculum that we created for them. And oh. we're also starting a video series called Trauma Talks, which I'm I'm going to include this interview in the Trauma Talks so they can watch this interview and see and see you in action talking about the book that changed my life. Oh, good. good. Um, yeah, so that this information and it repeating it so that they get the brainstem right. cortex piece yeah. so that it's like, okay, wait, I'm now, now I'm in my brainstem and I'm not, you know, you can't speak sometimes right. when you're, when you're in no. fight or flight. But, no, the very first neuroscience uh, research we did, have we put people in the scanner um, and have them relive their trauma, and the whole speech center of the brain disappears. So you become like a blubbering idiot. Uh, so when you get really upset, you sound like a, a crazy person because you can't get it out. Except Wernicke's area, which is the other speech center of the brain, which helps you to say fucking shit, stays online. What center is that? What part of the brain is so that? You have two, two speech centers in the brain. One of them is Broca's area that allows us to have a pretty rational and pleasant conversation. And there's Wernicke's area, which is sort of emotional language. So you can still swear <laughs> and cry for your mom, but you can't put things into time and context. And so you can still expel nasty and angry words, but you cannot communicate anymore. You, and you, literally you cannot communicate because both sides, you, like, you, like we said before, you can't learn, but you also, nobody's hearing each other. No, you cannot communicate. So you cannot really say, hey, you know, when you said that, it really bugged me. And, you know, let, let's talk about how we can talk to each other. No, no that's not possible. Wow, but see, and that's what gets frustrating. The people, like the officers, they get frustrated because they've said this to this person 30 times or the parole board, they've said this to the guy 30 times, but if you're not in your, if you're not here, right. it's not coming in. And that's the thing. It's like right there in that nugget that could yeah. change the whole prison system. Once we realize. Well, we also need to really learn what you, how you can change it. For example, at the end of my book, I talk about neurofeedback, how you can learn to play computer games with your own brain waves and calm your own brain down. I would be pretty surprised if you told me that you're doing neurofeedback in the, in the presence where you work. I've never heard about that. Huh? So we're trying to, where I live right now, we're trying to move towards getting neurofeedback in the school systems. So that when kids come to school on Monday morning, they have seen horrible things that people have been beating them, so they're out of control, labeled with these stupid diagnoses like oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder, which are completely meaningless diagnoses. And then these kids are too upset. You can, hey, why don't we do some neurofeedback? Calm your brain down. 
and then they don't they're not a pain in the neck in the class and they can actually learn and so what what's really disturbing to me is the degree to which um there is really very little funding to study effective interventions and i've sort of been you know the crazy really always hustling for it and trying it but there are more interventions that work than what people are aware of and how does the neurofeedback um work how does that work what what is what is the child looking at when they're oh, there? you're looking at their own brain and so you put electrodes on on people's skull you harvest the brains uh, the, the brain waves underneath it uh, when you look at these brain waves and you know what you're seeing i go like wow it's amazing that this kid is able to do anything at all because they usually see these very disturbed brains and you go like okay so we need to make more of those waves so the kid can become calmer and learn so you put him in front of the computer and the computer gathers their brain waves and whenever the kid makes the right brain waves that will help him to focus and be calm and concentrate uh, a spaceship moves or he hears some nice music playing or he gets some some of the water in your brain and whenever uh, he doesn't make any of these waves that help him uh, the stimulus disappears and yeah you broadcast hey come on i don't want to look at a blank screen and so you you sort of get sort of pushed to make the right brain waves or so automatically and then before too long you start feeling calmer as if you can train the brain train the brain my mind aside from psychedelics which is very hot also um, uh, the brain computer interface stuff is really the big thing of the future and that we can we can really wire our brains in ways that are helpful to us yeah wow i think we should do a, a study in prison i think i think i would like to talk to you about that well it's a big question of it, it, that'd be great actually yes but you know doing a study is a complex thing you know it costs a study i'd say at least a million dollars before you do a study i mean this is hard not an easy thing to do. Anything's easy if you decide it's easy. Well, you know, if it's easy for you to get a million dollars together and the research team, like, you know, it, it, these are complex things to do, but you should. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm, you know, now that I have your okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go see what we can do about that. Cause I feel like people in prison are returning to us and 95% yeah. of the people in prison are returning home. Absolutely. And if they're Absolutely. in great shape, yeah. Guess what's going to happen to their communities? Those so, communities are going to benefit from their arrival. And so the other thing is that nobody will want to do anything because people are spending so much money on ineffective programs that you need to do the research. Yes. And you're saying, I want to do a study. I go like, go for it. You're in a community with a lot of very smart people out there in Los Angeles and a lot of money people. So you should be able to do it. And once you treat a hundred prisoners and the ones who got neurofeedback are don't do don't go back and don't aren't violent anymore and are able to get a job. And the ones who didn't do neurofeedback are in the, in the same treadmill. You can take that to the Department of Education or the Department of Corrections, et cetera, et cetera, and say, look, it works. Right. But you need to prove it. Well, and how long does uh, does it take? in from what you've gathered for the brain to start getting trained oh 
uh, we usually see results. Like we did a study with extremely disruptive kids. They didn't have enough money to, to do it long enough. But after 20 sessions of neurofeedback, we saw a clear difference in their ability to concentrate, get along with other people, sleep better, eat better, and be more themselves. But clearly 20 sessions weren't enough. Right. When they talk about the importance of money, is that, you know, that's all the money that we had. And so these kids, so you saw them beginning to move, and then I said, sorry, we're out of money. So, ah. so, so the issue of, of really doing it well and doing the study well is very, very important. Absolutely. Well, maybe we can get you I, some more money I hope too. You do it. I hope you do it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm just starting. We're just starting yeah. because because we have 2.2 million people that are traumatized. To me, if you've committed a crime, I know. That's a trauma. And their kids. And their kids. Yes. America is the most traumatized Western country in the world. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's. I don't know if you've heard of Thomas Hubel and the work he's done with generational trauma. I've heard his name. I don't know him yet. Yeah, he talks about generational trauma. He works with oh, a yeah. lot of the Holocaust survivors and. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting that I got a call about 20 years ago from an organization that said, Do you, are you interested in studying uh, intergenerational trauma? I said, absolutely. Uh, and he said, let's study the effects of slavery. And he said, no, no, we want, want to study the effect of the Holocaust. But I said, a lot of people are studying the effect of the Holocaust, which is indeed important, but it only was a very small segment of our population. The huge unspoken trauma, of course, is the legacy of slavery, which indeed has taken place from generation to generation. And it took till 2021 for people to begin to talk about it. The Civil War ended in 1865. Like, it's just like stunning. It's stunning, but it's the secrecy and it's the shame, I think, that that keeps all of this in place because people don't want to face their past. They'd rather, oh, Here's another one. Here's here's another great quote from you. Victims are a member of society whose problems represent the memory of suffering, rage, and pain in a world that longs to forget. Again, <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> no, your writing is exquisite. Absolutely, I I I could read your book over and over and over again. Um, I mean, nobody wants to face it. Nobody wants to face what they've done, what their ancestors have done. But, you know, I know my ancestors, my mother was raised in a, on a sharecropping farm in Louisiana. I know that's a legacy of slavery right there. But it's also a legacy of poverty because when the slaves stopped working, guess who got poor? What? And that's the resentment of the South. The South doesn't want to, you know, they're resentful because they lost their, their, Abundance. My base, that's right. No, I, I, went, I came to Atlanta for the first time, I think in, 80, in 1965. So I was still a young guy. And it was, not, it was not a well place. And I thought, it looks like Sherman just walked, came through Atlanta. And that's only 1965. So the legacy of the Civil War was alive and well when I first went to the South, actually, yeah. Yes, and what happens is it keeps, everyone is traumatized. We're talking not just the African-Americans, we're also yeah. talking about the slave owners and the communities. And so yeah. nobody, everyone's in their brainstorm, stem, nobody's in their imagination. 
nobody's moving on and creating a new world. Yeah. That's the. That's what we need. That's, what we need. <laughs> That's the key the, here. The, at the end, at the end, you know, the neuroscience is terribly important. The treatment piece is terribly important. But the final common pathway is politics. Mm. If you don't get the support for it and the social structure for it and the money for it, nothing will change. Absolutely, I agree. Right. One thing I want to talk about is um, you, you say, I don't know, I might have been an interview I heard that your your normal functions are when you're traumatized don't really work either. Like they get shut down like sleep and digestion. And yeah. can you speak to that? Because um, I know in prison people aren't getting enough sleep. Um, and I know they're not getting enough food, the best food. So all of these, th yeah, yeah. So all of these things, it's really important to get enough sleep. I mean, yeah, but you know, it's easier said than done, huh? Uh, you know, that's, again, there's little brain machines that can help the brain to, to fall asleep, but I bet you don't see them in prison. Um, and that, indeed, so when we're talking about the survival brain, we're talking about housekeeping of the body. That's here we're talking about the most elementary bodily functions. So, appetite gets disturbed, sleep gets disturbed, digestive functions get disturbed, sexual functions get disturbed, breathing gets disturbed. Uh, when you have been traumatized, you're, uh, you're 15 times more likely to suffer from any of the 10 leading causes of death. You know, so this stuff doesn't just go to your forebrain, it, it is the whole body. Uh, the stress hormones keep getting secreted, uh, the immunological system is messed up, and so you live much shorter and you become much much more ill. So it's really, it's, it's a gigantic public health issue. And maybe the reason why the American health system is so much more expensive than any, any other country um, is in part because we have such a gigantic traumatized population. Wow, yeah, that's what you said. Uh, trauma is now our most urgent public health issue. I got that from the Centers for Disease Control. <laughs> I didn't calculate it. The CDC calculated that. Yeah, well, right. great news though. Everyone seems to be waking. This, this month is Mental Health Awareness Month. You know, it's huh. May. And so Oprah has that new book with Dr. Perry and Right. She has a new uh, uh, television series coming out. Yep. Nadine Burke Harris has the ACE Awareness My Number Story campaign. Yep. Yep. So, you know, the groundbreaking work that you that you started, no, you, no, no, and you... I, I shouldn't get a credit for it. Like, Bruce Perry is about my age. He was doing the work. You know, we've always admired each other's works. Uh, there's so many people who do it. Yeah, know? Stephen Porges. Uh, I know, I understand. Yeah. There's no, and not just you, but... You're part of that. You're part of yeah. the star, the star team. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was at, at the right time at the right place, but uh, it really is. So consciousness is bubbling up all over. And, and I, I have the sense that there is more of it today than there was three years ago. But, you know, we'll see. Yes. Well, I'm not going to stop talking about it until no. we until we work right. with the people in prison correctly and then if you, if you can change the prison system uh, that is how it bears fruit huh? yes we yes. just the fruit uh, I, i'm just planting the seeds but if you really are able to change the 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 juvenile justice and the corrections institution 
that's that's where it pays off. And why do you think so? Because I think so, but because it's a public health issue. It's just too damn expensive to have two and a half million people languishing in jails. Like what a waste of human lives to have two and a half million children in America whose parents are in jail. What a waste of human life. You know, all these people who are too traumatized, too ill to work. What a waste of life, you know. Exactly, exactly. What a, and a waste of joy and a waste of, yeah. you know, like just human, human uh, community. Community, that's one of the big things of healing. I love that silly segue I just did. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all need to con congratulate ourselves from time to time. It's very good. <laughs> but you say the community, um, you, you, you quote Ubuntu, you say, my humanity is inextricably bound up in yours. And yeah. um, that's, that's Delson Mandela and, and Bishop Tutu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so I have never worked in prisons. So I've visited prisons sometimes, but I don't know them in any way. But I bet that even in prison, you see little communities. Yes. Huh? And people have, who have each other's back, usually around stupid stuff like racial differences or whatever, tattoos. Or, <laughs> but, but our natural proclivity as human beings is to form communities. And I bet you even see that in jail. And, and and reciprocal relationships and that's really where you get your sense of safety is knowing you have each other's back and so that also becomes the important thing of of promoting that and creating that in every system we work in yeah yes but so the you know there's tribal it's a tr it's a tribal it's you know forming gangs is like a tribal instinct right completely understandable absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. And yet there are other people in the world, right? So the idea is that we have to include other people. Otherwise we have, you know, our own tribal instincts are not working. Our racism, our white supremacy is not working. So that we, the inclusion is part of the, part of the community that, that I'm envisioning in prison is that people right. recognize each other's differences, but also our similarities, which in this case, it's trauma. Well, not only trauma. You know, we all want to have healthy kids. We all want to uh, be good at something. We all want to be competent at something. You know, we like to cook. We like to make music. We like to build furniture. And so uh, a very important part of having self-esteem is to know that you're good at something. And And so we can certainly do a lot in prison and school systems to help people to feel like I am good at this. Yes. I don't see that happening a lot, but we should have much more of it. Yeah. Well, what we're doing, one of the programs we're doing at Compassion Prison Project is we're having uh, people contribute to our books that were uh, book anthologies by written by prison people so that they see their work in a book that they're, their good. poetry, their artwork is valuable good. and publishable. Good, good, good. yeah. And, and one of the yeah. things I want- We all need to be seen. That's part of being a human being. And 
I said, if you write a beautiful poem to say, would you like to read it to the group? And the people go, wow, that's amazing. You wrote that. You know, we need that, you know? Yes, yeah. we all need that. We all desperately need to be seen. I mean, that was one of my problems as a child is that my mother was so, uh, my sister um, was allergic to milk. So I never got any attention as a, once right. she came along. And so I've been trying to get seen all my life and everyone in prison and they'll do things to get seen that can be damn, you know, dangerous or. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we want to, we want to, we want to move from yeah. here. We have a deep biological need to be known and to be seen. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, there was a book from, came out of Argentina. Uh, Jacobo Timmerman it said, cell without a number, prisoner without a name. Mm. I mean, just to recite the title of the book just brings tears to my eyes. Huh? To be completely irrelevant. To Absolutely. Have to be er erased as a person. It's terrible. Yeah. And ironically, that's what trauma does anyway, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it erases it erases our ability to be human because, I mean, while we're in the fight or flight state, this is our human center, right? Right up here. Right. So, yes, what a what a haunting title. Um, one of you, oh, so you say the challenge to recovery is to reestablish the ownership of the body and the mind of the self. Yeah. And so can you talk about regulation and how we, how we, how we can like do little simple exercises. I know you talk about moving and meditation, but is there little steps people can start taking just in this? Yeah. You know, uh, so I'm very friendly with a, what I think is quite a large group of yoga in prison. You may have heard them. Um, exactly. Going to prison doing yoga every day with other people, uh, encouraging each other to do it, fantastic. Um, the hula program I talked about, you know, I, I lived in Hawaii for a long time and I consider myself part Hawaiian. I dance a mighty good hula myself, actually. People don't know that about me. But, <laughs> I think doing the hula together, I mean, it's, just, it's a wonderful experience to just, uh, to just move together, uh, to just sing together. Uh, and so I think programs where you can really have fun together to to explore your physicality together. Volleyball, basketball, the all ways of just getting yourself in rhythm and in tune with other people. And then my favorite program probably is the Shakespeare in Prison program. Uh, uh, gorgeous. Uh, to, to learn to inhabit uh, a character who isn't you but to be a king and to speak the words of a king and to be a beggar and to speak the words of a beggar. Say, oh, that's what a beggar says. That's what a king says. And that's what so-and-so says. Oh, that's what it feels like to really learn to inhabit somebody other than that miserable person who you consider yourself to be and say, look, I can actually stand up and feel like a king. Huh? Yes, you talk about, sorry about that noise, yeah. but you talk about, uh, it's called Sentence to Shakespeare, right? That's the juvenile 
Well, there's there's a number of uh, number of poetry. The program that I I know best is is called Shakespeare in the Courts here in the Berkshire County. Yeah. Ah, yes, and one of the things I want to do is have Hamilton go to one of the prisons and have them perform Hamilton for. Not for the prisoners. I know a number of programs where people perform things for prisoners, and nothing wrong with that. No, but for the public, they need to perform it. Yes, they need to be helped to say those lines and to feel those lines in their bodies. Huh? Yes. Don't be a spectator, be a participant. Ah. Do it, have the courage to get up there and say these difficult lines and go like, I can say these lines. Yes, because that, and that's putting you right here. Well, it's putting it all the way through. Ah. When you are, when you are Richard III or Richard II or Othello or whatever, you become Othello. You become those people. I said, I am. And you stand like this person. That is what it feels like. Very profound. So here's a question. A lot of the men that I work with are in uh, maximum security prisons. They're yeah. locked down 23 hours a day. Yeah. It's yeah. not solitary, but it, you know, it's close to it. So w what can we do in there? Like they can't recite Shakespeare or we could get them a book, but what could we do in that situation? They, they have a celly so they can be with their, you know, they can, they have one person, I guess they could hula it together. But well, you know, I'm really the wrong person to ask this. You know, I can speculate and say things, but it's likely that people who know about prisons will go, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And so uh, I think you want to talk to Kurt Tofteland, for okay. example, who runs the Shakespeare in Prison program. Okay. But we really talk to people who have worked in prisons, which I've never done. So, so I'd be sort of overstep my bounds if I would start giving concrete advice how to do that. Okay, I understand. I just, you know, I just want people to be in their cortex for uh, for some of the day every day, so they can start right, getting right. getting. And I'm sure it can be done. Uh, and but I I wouldn't go to me as the first part person. I'd go to people who actually have done it, who have experimented with, it, and to say that didn't work and that seemed to work okay, uh, you know, and. I happen to hear fairly regularly about uh, programs at St. Quentin. And mm. since you're a Californian, I'd hook up with this focus in St. Quentin and say, what are you learning? What's working for you? You know? Absolutely. I mean, of course, I'm I'm in the network, so we're yeah. we're all talking. And yeah. you know, one of the things is one of the great healing things is the restorative justice programs where they they may not talk to, directly to their victim, but they meet with other victims so that they understand the real impact of the of what happened, wow. um, like kind of vicarious, a vicarious victim. And yeah, but they, they also need to see. I think that's important. But they, see, they have been so hurt themselves. Yes. And I think it's important to. There was a program in San Francisco called Man Alive. Uh, run by a guy named Seamus, I forgot his last name. It was a fantastic program, and like so many of these programs, it was abolished just as it was being very successful. You know, the, 
you the the forces to that are not on your side are really formidable uh, but if you look up mind alive my friend jim gillinger was very involved in it it was a great program where people also deal need to deal with their own trauma yes and i think it's it may be hard to really have compassion for somebody else until you have compassion for yourself and as long as you don't dare to know how hurt you were by what happened to you and and forgive yourself for having been so hurt uh it becomes hard to be actually maybe hard to, to focus on other people i absolutely agree i because most of the people in prison were victims first and that's that's the piece people forget it's that and then it's like what do you expect of course they're gonna do this if you're con and, and it, it may give them even a sense of entitlement look what they did to me i'm allowed to do it to you true well yes that's <laughs> yes right. exactly well it's but it's learned behavior as well right yeah um but but you know this is very it's hard and very serious work you know and we're dealing with people who have long habits of that have not helped them very much so to teach people new habits is a lot of work but if prisoners costing $48,000 per year per person there's plenty of money out there that could be rerouted probably in that direction absolutely I want to tell you one of the things we did one of the exercises we did I printed out your epilogue um, that was called choices to be made right. and in in the circle of 35 men uh, each one got a copy and we read it aloud the whole the whole thing wow that's great because and you talk about it's really it's like it's your um gift to us about what's possible that we need to get yeah. into the schools it's really it, to me it's the part it's your manifesto it's like this is what what needs to happen yeah. your call to action yeah so after we read that the men you know i could see the tears in their eyes and they're just like why didn't they see us why didn't they help us yeah and so i just wanted to thank you for that that beautiful epilogue which i highly recommend people read again yeah. just to understand what we can do who we can be as a society and we can empty these prisons if we just take care of take care of each other you know well you know again it's interesting because it's so much dependent on politics uh i've gotten a lot of blowback about an epicenter you say you know your book is great until you got the epilogue and you're just a communist <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and my response is no actually i'm an eisenhower republican <laughs> Like the good old Republicans, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, but so if you're a Republican speaking, you know, a good old Republican speaking these these ideas, then they're just human ideas. I mean, that's the thing. They say socialism is, you know, it's gonna destroy our society. I think socialism doing pretty well in Sweden, Denmark, Holland, Germany. Um <laughs> like <laughs> it's doing pretty well there. It's not socialism, it's called social democracy and you know. And it's just as too. That's a, when you say that it's a sign that you're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, go live in one of the social democracies sometimes. See how it works. And there's, 
The incarceration rate, for example, in the Netherlands, where I grew up, which has become quite a nice country after I left, is now 58 per 100,000. In the US, it's 950 per 100,000. Uh, so you want to continue the way you're doing? Stay, to, stay in the course and you'll continue to waste billions and billions of dollars on things to, to incarcerate people and to destroy lives. If you want to learn something, do it with these stupid terms that don't mean anything until you know something and learn where there's other societies that work, right? Absolutely. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's... Well, you do, but... <laughs> well, here, but, but, but we have... Say, this is socialism. It just brands you as a retard. Well, it's... yes. Right. I would say socialism means humanism. It's just... You know, we are in this together, you know? And if we're not in this together, you'll pay your money for getting a gated community and to getting a gun and getting more police and getting more prisons. That's, you can do that by not facing reality. Like, you know, but um, is that what you want to do? Is that why you want to spend your money? Like, you know. No, and I don't want to spend our, our energy on keeping people locked up when we could spend our energy and healing them and bringing them home. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, Give you one more one more quote that yeah, i loved yes we're right there yeah we're right at the time um our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another restoring relationships restoring relationships and community is central to restoring well-being and um i just want to that's it good luck with you and your work Thank you, Bessel van der Kolk. It's been a, okay. an honor to be with you and I thank you for changing my life and by extension, maybe the lives of 2.2 million people. Well, hopefully. <laughs> be very good. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you, Bessel van der Kolk, for your wisdom and your authority on trauma and how it affects the brain, body and spirit. It was such an honor to speak with you and to um, understand even more about what happens to the brain and the spirit when it's traumatized. As usual, please like and share this podcast and please go to our website at compassionprisonproject.org and see what we're up to and donate or volunteer and get involved in changing this paradigm. Thank you.
as we continue our journey. Thank you.